Welcome to season nine of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, Penn South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with writer, activist, and Penn Myanmar member, Wei Mo Nang. He began writing as a young student and has since been published in several literary outlets. Prior to the military coup in February 2021, Wei Mo Nang had already developed a reputation as a committed non-violent activist due to his long-standing involvement with student unions and youth groups. In the immediate aftermath of the military coup, Wei Mo Nang rose to prominence as a leader of the anti-coup protest movement and was among those who popularized the idea of banging pots and pans as a non-violent act of resistance to the military junta's rule. He was arrested on 15 April 2021. In May 2023, Wei Mo Nang was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment for committing high treason. This ruling results in a combined total of 54 years in prison as he was already serving a 34-year prison sentence following several earlier convictions in retaliation for his peaceful advocacy against the military coup of 1 February 2021. This latest unjust conviction follows rushed legal proceedings that violated fair trial norms. PNSA joins Penn International and Penn Myanmar in calling for the immediate and unconditional release of Wei Mo Nang and all those unjustly detained by the military junta for their peaceful expression in Myanmar. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. Penn South Africa also joins the Penn community in mourning the passing of writer, photographer, artist, and president of Penn Myanmar, Nyan Chen, known by his pen name, Nyi Pule. Nyi Pule died following a heart attack on 21 June 2023. When Myanmar's military took power in a coup, on 1 February 2021, Nipule was forced to go into hiding after a warrant was put out for his arrest for defaming the military under Section 505A of the Criminal Code, a charge frequently used to target dissidents and those who have publicly criticized the coup. Subjected to difficult living conditions, he was prevented from receiving adequate medical care due to the risk of arrest by the military junta. Bohan Sonmez, president of Penn International, said, and I quote, Nyi Pule embodied the best of Penn. His writing was cherished by young and old, and he lived according to his principles, despite great personal cost to his freedom and health. The Penn community mourns his tragic passing, but he will continue to live on through his words. You can read more about Nyi Pule in our show notes. In this third episode of Season 9, 
for your casting game to invite Latasha N. Nevada Diggs and Seatlin Tuli to reflect on their poetic practice and their recently published collections. Their wide-ranging conversation covers language and dispossession, literacies, lineages, music, and visions for the future. Fiyokaz Ngimtu is a writer-performer situated in Cape Town, whose praxis uses poetry, song, physical theatre, storytelling, and ritual to navigate ancestral trauma, confront inequality, and inspire healing. She has received awards for short stories, and her writing has appeared in the Kalahari Review, Harry, Ake Review, and elsewhere. Latasha, what I've noted is that you're highly invested in the invocation of feminine biographies and narratives, giving a glimpse of the interiority of women's lives and everything from the seemingly mundane to the sacred. I find this work paramount to our collective psycho-spiritual wounds and finding healing. Latasha N. Nevada Diggs is a writer, vocalist, and performance sound artist. She's the author of the poetry collections Twerk and Village. She has received several grants and fellowships. She lives in Harlem and teaches part-time at Brooklyn College and Stetson University. My imaginings is reconstructing this notion of a village, of a healthy village that is mentally healthy physically healthy, that is literate in literacy, and not just, you know, literature, like the literary arts, but literate in well-being, in resources. How do we go back to this notion of what truly, ideally, we imagine a village to be? Sitlen Tuli is a poet from Durban and a recipient of the 2023 Johannesburg Institute for Advanced Studies Writing Fellowship for his poetry. He's the current editor-in-chief of New Contrast. He's the author of the poetry chapbooks Rumblin' and The Nation, in addition to the full-length poetry collection Zabalaza Republic. We have this tracing of lineage or culture, which I feel like modernity is stripping away from us and we are sort of merging into one culture. I guess it might be a culture of zeros and currency and capitalism and how much money I'm making and whatnot. And there still has to be some sort of rootedness. And I'm trying to enhance that message and really make a statement that we come from somewhere and we need to remember where we come from. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Molueni, Absheng, Sanbonani, Obrigado, Sava, De Maceroni. Hello and welcome to Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This is the third episode of Season 9, and I'm your host for this episode, Vuyoga Zingemtu, and delighted to be interviewing Latasha N. Nevada Diggs, who is the author of the poetry collection Village and Sithlenduli, whose latest offerings are titled Zabalaza Republic and The Nation. I'm recording in studio in Cape Town, while Latasha is in Harlem, and Sithle joins us from Durban. So as a cautionary word and a disclaimer, you might hear some ambient sounds in the background. I ask that you grab a mug of something warm, sit back, 
and join me in giving a warm welcome to our two esteemed guests as we discuss the parallels that I found in their books, including poetry, trauma, inheritance, language, music, community, memory and memorization, and everything else that I have found worthy of asking these two amazing dynamic people about. Latasha, can I start with you, please? Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. And all the better for having come across your work. Looking at what English does as a language, right? It's known that despite the hybridity of the language itself and its literary traditions, it thrives on aggrandizing Eurocentric perspectives. And here I am being mailed a book and I come across, I don't know, I come across a brown woman whose work just subverts all those traditions, dragging all the literary traditions and all the cultural influences of her Portuguese slash Latino, Arabic, Tzalagi, German, Yiddish, Yoruba, Dene, Quechua, and God knows who and what else into the master's language. Sister, what conjuring is it <laughs> that you got up to in putting together village? Talk to me. How has academia received this work? Because I'm really astounded. You know, that's a really good question. I don't know yet. I don't know yet, honestly. The book was released in February after much, much, much struggle, personal struggles and creative struggles to get it done. So we'll see what academia thinks of it. But to be fairly honest, I'm not quite sure yet. I know that there's a handful of little mini reviews that have praised it. I was very fortunate and blessed to have the three writers who blurbed the book, Evie Shockley, who is a scholar and fantastic poet in her own right, praise it, as well as Joelle McSweeney at the University of Notre Dame, and a good friend and colleague, Ansem Berrigan from New York, um, praised it. So we'll see. We'll see what academia thinks of it. We'll see what you know, non-academia thinks of it. <laughs> well, I can speak on behalf of non-academia to say I am all thumbs up. And I think it's so wonderful finding work that goes against the grain and that just disrupts the norms. And I think that's what excited me about not only reading the book, but also binging on your YouTube videos. There's something magical <laughs> that you do, and I'm privileged, really, to have this opportunity to speak to you about it. Thank you. Where's the I really enjoyed reading Zabalaza Republic and The Nation. And of you, I want to ask, because Isizulu, right, is renowned for being a naturally poetic language in which uh, poetic devices ranging from simple metaphors to allegory pepper everyday speech. For instance, I really just want to know, I know you touch on the loss of your mother tongue as a result of English being the medium of instruction throughout your academic life and also the subsequent devastating impact this has had on your younger siblings. 
How do you negotiate then the reclamation of Isizulu and its inherent animated lyricism into your relationship to English in your poetry specifically? Yeah, as an academic or somebody who's in the field of ancient history, I have to navigate these things. You know, the language of instruction is English, but I also had to implement decolonization in my curriculum when I was lecturing at UFS and subsequently at UJ. And so I am confronted with this whole idea of double consciousness, as was made famous by W.E.B. Du Bois. And so when it comes to engaging myself and my poetry, I have to consider these things and how I want to have this conversation with myself and how other people engage with the work that I'm doing. Because the first question I might be asked is, why am I not writing in Isizulu as well? Why am I writing in English? And what message am I trying to convey? Should we all abandon our mother tongues as well? So there is that uh, guilt at the back of my mind as I work. But yeah, it's just something that we have to kind of navigate. And I've stayed true to myself while writing Zabla's Republic. And I've been very honest as well when I've put the words down. And that's as much as I can offer. Thank you very much. It really is illuminating. And the next question I think I'll pose to whoever would like to take it. What contingency measures, speaking of language and dispossession, do the dispossessed and disenfranchised need to make in quantifying and naming what has been taken from us? Like, what, in your opinion, as a poet, do we need to do in order to make up for that deficit? Let me attempt to. And let me attempt to in my roundabout way of getting to an answer. The other language that is obviously present in the book is English. And English has always been something that I've been conflicted by. One, because the origins of my tongue, my tongues are questionable. I speak English because of history, right? Because of where my genes were placed geographically. Also, the Englishes that I'm exploring in the book are a type of literature of the impoverished that is often not viewed as literature. And what I'm talking about is application forms for food stamps, doctor's notes about the health of a senior woman with hypertension and kidney disease, and how that is in direct conversation with a notice from a city agency that is informing this person, this impoverished person, that what little food stamps they are being provided are now being reduced. And it's these types of literacies that we often don't look at as a way to tell the story are one that tells the story of a life, of a life of a Black woman or a Brown woman, um, of an impoverished woman. And how does that tie to your question? Like I said, I'm doing my roundabout way. It's important for 
poetry in all its varied communities and aesthetics that we kind of unpack these real issues that are not seen often. I mean, I chose to focus on the relationship between myself and my mother and to also highlight things that were, one, very difficult to show simply and to also bring to light a type of struggle to be better or to be different from where you come from and realizing that this is very much part of you, that without certain literacies, without an understanding of these documents and what they tell and foretell, you can get yourself in a rut, that the individual can get themselves in a rut. And that's what I wanted to explore in this book in my own way of exploring poetry as a tool for that. So I think it's necessary. And right you are. And I want to thank you as well for allowing that kind of vulnerability, because some of what you shared, especially in those documents, was very sensitive information relating to your family and the relationship, as you've stated, to your mother. So I can't imagine that having been an easy experience. It was certainly cathartic for me to be able to consume all of that as a black woman with my own familial histories as well. And, you know, my own issues. So thank you. I want to ask a few to maybe read for us the poem, The Sunset Clause, while I follow on page 27 of Sabelaza Republic. All right. The Sunset Clause. From the low felt west of the Lubombo Mountains, between rivers of Wapangola and Mkuse, Beneath the harsh sun of a truth picked by hands, while onlookers looked on from the shade. In the after tears of black skin, long after blood had left the river Ngome, an ongoing debate raging on concerning ways of the soil and belonging. After a first non-response of the cotton mouth, there was reason enough for suspicion that some among us had been in collusion at sundown since night had fallen in the middle of our asking, and the ones asking were only met by their own echoes, gathered by a thin thread of hope, held tightly in the tender embrace of a long, drawn-out silence. Thank you so much for that. It really is grounding in terms of just looking at where we are as a people as South Africans, no doubt, but also as Africans, in terms of us trying to make sense of what has been lost and how we find our way forward with that in mind. So, I've picked up on traces of an almost epigenetic nostalgia in your poem, Sunset Clause. It's in the borderline pastoral inclinations and you're referencing to specific ecological features. There's something of a longing, I think, for the places that you might have visited or inhabited in your childhood, such as the Lubambe Mountains, the rivers of Epongolo, Mkuze, Ngome. I really am intrigued by the deliberateness in your landscaping in Sabalaza Republic. 
What were you doing there and to what end? Yeah, like I am basically tracing my lineage through my work these days. And there's another poem that I've worked on that's not on Zabalaza Republic called Tugela, where I trace the origins of my family name, which is Nduli, and it begins along the Tugela River. And so when I speak about Epongol uh, as well, uh, and they call it Blood River for some odd reason when it's actually Ngome, I don't like that, but yeah. You know how history is written by the victor, but so we have this tracing of lineage or culture as well, which I feel like uh, modernity is, is stripping away from us, and we are sort of merging into one culture. I guess it might be a culture of zeros and currency and capitalism and how much money I'm making and whatnot, and there still has to be some sort of rootedness, and I'm trying to enhance that message and really make a statement that we come from somewhere and we need to remember where we come from. Writing Zabalaza was my reminding myself that, you know, I have to make the statement and have other people realize that in order to move forward, we need to sort of have a route and not just go wherever we're going. And that's why I wrote The Sunset Clause as well, because even that, The Sunset Clause is a play on the period emerging from apartheid and the whole 99 period as well. So I wanted to touch on that. But yeah, there's a lot going on in that poem. Really, really. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Latasha. Yes, sis. With the America of Biden and just America in general, really being blatant in its disregard for black lives while reducing black history to something celebrated for 31 days in a 365-day year. I know that is something of a gripe that you carry. How do you then insist on your visibility, not only as a poet, but also as a human being, as a flesh and body person? How do you insist on your visibility through your work? And what kind of imaginaries and futurisms do you project towards? in your writing? Uh, and the reason why I'm sighing because um, there are two elder poets in New York, one uh, poet named David Henderson, who sadly, his health has taken a turn. And so we're rounding up to find the resources for him. And then just recently, Another poet that was just brought to my attention, another elder poet by the name of Hattie Gossett. Now, keep in mind, just to give you some quick context, David Henderson was a founding member of the Umbra Poets, which was a collective of Black poets tied with the Black arts movement, co-founded by him, as well as Rashida Ismaili, who is a poet from Daome, Benin, who moved a very, very long time ago to the States to become an opera singer. And nonetheless, she became a poet and a writer. And Hattie Gossett was very much in conversation with poets like Audre Lorde and Tony K. Bambara. So these are poets that are well-respected. At the same time, they're not well-known. They're not well-publicized. 
which I think is a reality, which I try to tell younger poets, it's only going to be one or two. And then the rest of it will create a life, right? And just continue, God willing, being poets as well. My imaginings is reconstructing this notion of a village, of a healthy village. By that, I'm meaning a healthy village that is mentally healthy, physically healthy, that is literate in literacy. And not just, I'm not just talking about, you know, literature, like the literary arts, but literate in well-being, in resources, in legal and stuff where we can stop having to do these emergencies where all of a sudden we're creating GoFundMes. GoFundMes are beautiful. GoFundMes are not sustainable. And GoFundMes also rely upon disposable incomes. And our various communities don't necessarily have these disposable incomes. So we know this is happening. How can we be better prepared for ourselves? How do we go back to this this notion of what truly, ideally, we imagine a village to be, right? And that's what I'm hoping for in the future because our country has told us time and time and time again, they don't care. (laughs) They do not care whether it's housing, whether it's health, our healthcare system is a mess. Housing becomes more difficult and more difficult. The medium rent in Manhattan is 4500 you know, and that does not speak to the population that does not make income to afford 4500 a month. So mm-hmm. I'll stop there. Let me stop. Uh, let me get off my soapbox before I continue. <laughs> Stay there, sis. We need you there. We need you there. Thank you so much. And here's to sustainable villages where wellness is not an afterthought and a contingency measure that we fall back on. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask, like, it's concerning Sikla's work as well, that one point of commonality that I was delighted to find in your work is the love for and incorporation of music. You mentioned music a lot in, your, in the first part of your book, the chapter titled Distillery, I believe. And what I would like to think of as a very detailed final will and testament in the poem titled Performance. Yes. For instance, there's a litany of music selections that you want at what seems to be your wake, like house music, hip hop, ska, art ensemble of Chicago, Jin Lee, Massive Attack, yeah, yeah. Really, I just want to ask of you to please speak to us of this intertextuality and the kind of impact that you hope to achieve by incorporating these and referencing these different artists and music forms and what you hope that feeds into your poetry and what that does for the reader? Sure thing. Well, one, going back to the types of Englishes, I wanted to explore the legal document and what might the legal document offer as a poetic form and to also ask, should I sign this document? 
right? Should I mm-hmm. sign this document on the designated place that requires a signature? Does it become legal bound, right? You know, but with the music selections, this is what I am. I'm born in 1970, informed by some of the music of the 70s, but I'm really shaped by the music of the 90s, which was everything, everything and anything, you know? And so Depeche Mode matters just as much as Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam coming from the Bronx, right? That Susie and the Banshees means just as much as Art Ensemble of Chicago, which is something that I come to learn of later on, you know, like working at a coffee shop and using Barnes and Nobles as my study hall, because, you know, that's what I did during a time when Barnes and Nobles had a music section. And this is what shaped me. And this is really the kaleidoscope of music that creates a particular generation that is needing to escape an environment, even if it's just for the duration of the song or if it's within the clubs of lower Manhattan as they existed. That if you were a child of the 90s, you knew that all of this music was played in a club, depending on what floor you were on, depending on what rope you could get through, you know, and it shaped you. So that's what I want. <laughs> I want a celebration of that. And I also want the proper DJs. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I'd be tempted to fly to that occasion. Well, you know, you'll be fed good, too, because I give you the address. <laughs> Listen, I'm here for it. That playlist, magical. Truly, thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> Sile on page 28 of Zabalaza Republic is the poem The Lucky Dube Theory. Then again on page 32, Letter and Caiaphas, titled after a couple that I believe to be the doyens of South African ballad music, really. And then again, there are titles like The Jazz Bantu, not to mention how the book is just a treasure trove of quieto references. You even appear to be in mm-hmm. conversation with music when you profess to not be enchanted with Umbatanga, I believe it is. No, sorry, Maskandi music. Care to comment mm-hmm. on this relationship between your poetry and the song traditions and musical influences of your childhood and all your present life? Okay, well, I've been known as a poet that incorporates music from the very beginning even from Stranger as well, my first debut collection, all the way back in 2015. So now I am trying to sort of speak more to what I'm listening to now and, of course, what I grew up listening to. Even the um, the title of the collection itself, Zabalaza Republic, I was listening to Brothers of Peace, the Zabalaza song from back in the day. And... The original title of this collection was actually Republic, just on its own. But then, you know, I got tired of it and just listened to a lot of like Guaido and yeah, a lot of Hugh Masigela as well. I think I made two references to Hugh Masigela in the poem Zambezi and Jazz Bantu poem as well. So listening to a lot of that. So I do play a lot of music when I'm writing my work. 
and uh, it can range to um, even now I listen to a lot of deep house music. I'm a piano sometimes if I'm feeling trendy. I wouldn't say I write to it. It's a bit too jumpy for my liking. But yeah, I think with regards to music, there is a musicality to my work as well. Like I do work with a lot of rhythm. I do write for a sound as well. I think if you do read my work out aloud, there is that musicality to it. So yeah, it's just something I've incorporated. I do call myself a failed rapper as well. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, I might have been on the stage, you know, rocking the mic, you know, but you know, I chose this life. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. As soon as you've said failed rapper, you said failed rapper. And I thought to the time when I was audacious enough to pitch Motif, right? Asking them to sign me because what the hell? I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are discussing yeah. poetry and literature. It's interesting, actually, the music references that I picked up from the book and the fact that from the title, my brain immediately went to Tanjusamazwa's Zabalaza. I don't know if mm -hmm. that was intentional. And also the red, green, and black you know, on the cover also spoke to Pan-Africanism and the music traditions that that speaks to, the fellas and everything else that come to mind. So mm. I love it. It really inspires the reader to go and explore not only the musicality of the poetry itself, but also the music referenced and everything else that that might lead to. So kudos and thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Again, speaking to the musicality and the rhythms and the sounds in the poetry, Latasha, there's something that I hmm. like to think of as, inverted commas, discomfortable syncopation in your poetry's cadence. And believe hmm. you me, I am here for it, is why I'm naming it. It actually got me wondering, who were the influences, who were the formative influences that you leaned on coming into spoken word poetry? Who's your favorite MC? And well, what well do you draw from in creating this work? I have to say favorites, because there's no one. It would be MC Light and Missy Elliott. And I believe I've stuck to that <laughs> for over 20 years now. It really are these two women within the genre of hip hop that really informed me of sticking to your guns and having fun yes. with it, right? And then of the male MCs, ooh, Faramont, who was mm. originally of Organized Confusion, and really a lot of the Oakland hip hop scene, which included the hieroglyphics, Del, the funky Homo sapien, Souls of Mischief, and Far Side. There was a freedom that they had in subjects and topics. Of course, coming back to the East Coast, De La Soul, absolutely. True Goy, who I was having an interesting conversation with recently, a good friend and amazing poet, Douglas Kearney. And we talk about this all the time. And Trugoy is like his favorite MC in terms of his um, way of shaping and chopping up patterns within the bars. In terms of poets, really what I looked at in rewriting this manuscript, because this manuscript was my thesis project 
and it was completely mm-hmm. different from what it is now. Mm-hmm. And I looked at a lot of things. I looked, of course, at Douglas, but I also looked at writers who exposed things that were uncomfortable. So Don Lundy Martin's discipline. I also looked at Claudia Rankine's End of the Alphabet, which I believe is being republished overseas. And for people who only know her post-citizen, go back to her poetry books, which are just mind-boggling. And of course, Harriet Mullen and the late Akila Oliver. I looked at a lot of different formulations done by more procedural experimental writers like the Oyulipo Collective, also looking at um, this chapbook written by Michael Leong, and looking at the devices, the mechanisms, but then also the moment to stop playing and ask myself, okay, what am I getting at? What am I getting towards? This book did have to do with the literacies, the various literacies you encounter throughout life in documents, but it also forced me to do things in order to detach myself emotionally from the subject in order for me to get to the point. So some of the syncopations that you're seeing, that you're reading, that you're hearing, I would do a number of restricted acrostics or restricted golden shovels. Golden shovels is Mm -hmm. a contemporary form created by Terence Hayes. But my word bank, per se, would be these documents or websites concerning child development, brain development, the impacts of trauma on a child, a child's brain, the effects of drinking while pregnant and how that may underdevelop a child, which is heavy stuff and depressing stuff, right? But, but to use those solely as the word banks to then create little fragments of pieces and then to then look at those pieces and say, okay, what do I want to do with these pieces? What is the story to unpack now? I have these pieces. I have these fragments. I have all of these things, these bells and whistles, whoop-de-doo, you know, so what? What do I want to say now with these? And then this is what you have. We're really grateful to that commitment to the inquiry aspect of the work, you know, especially in approaching subjects that at first glance appear unrelated to poetry, that you're able to go in there and excavate and come out with something that is totally relatable. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. While still on influences, I want to ask a few whom amongst the drum era writers you relate to the most and why. And I ask this because music intersected beautifully with literature and poetry during that time. 
from the penny whistlers and the gangsters, the beauty queens and the literati, all these people hung out in the same jazz bars, quoting the classics here, quipping in Zotzital there. How do we then, in our modern times, create pathways for politics and popular culture, music and the idiosyncrasies of place to make way for a dynamic and a hybrid poetics? How do we go about that nowadays? It seemed a more clear-cut path back then when the Ken Tembers of the world were doing it while the Miriam Makebas were singing. What do we do now with Om playing in the background and everything? Well, yes, like you said, Ken Temba is somebody that I've read a lot. Also, Nat Nakasa being someone who's also from Durban. Just those two. Uh, though I do acknowledge Mr. Drum, Henry Ngumalo, as well as Blok Marisane. But in terms of just overall aspect of the drum boys, you know, I also used to follow, well, I still follow the history of drum magazine as well. So, yeah, it's quite an important point in our South African literature history, as well as even, yeah, like you said, pop culture history. And so the whole idea of just the dynamics of these black writers really setting the world alight with their work and eventually moving abroad has also taken me to other aspects or other people to think about like Hugh Masigel and Miriam Makeba like you said being exiled musicians and what they meant to the movement sort of writing away from home or rather working making music away from home and so when I think about the contemporary aspect poetry is not really a very popular medium like I said I could have been a musician but here I am now and so it comes to sort of writing something that is meaningful to my generation that has uh, resonance with them. And so when I come to write these poems in Zabalaz Republic, I'm trying my best to speak to my generation while speaking to myself in a way that they can relate to. And so I can only be as honest as the work takes me or where the work takes me to go. And so when I ask about questions like the letter in Kaifas, how will we work together, the males and the females of South Africa, even though there is a very contentious relationship between the two, and how do we find each other? Like letter and Kaifas found themselves in exile. There are so many conversations that are happening in South Africa that I feel like we just need to open ourselves up and have that dialogue rather than avoiding it. And I think uh, we are in a culture of avoidance. I think uh, there is this sort of tendency of instant gratification that we have. And yeah, like even it bleeds over into, into the literature as well. I always have this discussion with my friends in terms of like literary criticism in this country, not really having a high standard. And I feel like, you know, some mediocrity has been allowed to be <laughs> acclaimed. And so I feel like um, the, the merit uh, and when it comes to like really being honest and really like valuing the craft, I think uh, we have a lot of things to say, my generation, and we can use those pop culture references to make sense to our generation and not have to over-intellectualize these things. Uh, I speak as somebody that is still present on social media as much as I am reading your phenons and your your philosophy, your genetic hearts. But yeah, I'll listen to uh, 
the contemporary stuff like uh, Maporisa, whatnot. I'll I'll do all of that. And so I want to have a message that, you know, is still very much something we can hear and, and consume. And so, yeah, I hope I, I've gone on a tangent, but I hope that answers your question. More than just, it really does. You had me at how avoidant we are, really, of mm. the issues that we should be talking about. And when you said mediocrity, something in me danced. I almost wanted to ask <laughs> you to name a few, but we shan't put you in the spotlight. <laughs> oh, no. We maybe should not. <laughs> I might just get flogged. No, no. You're never going to get booked for anything, my brother. Trust you, me. Some of us across the pond are having this similar conversation. <laughs> I mean, the podcast is called a transatlantic conversation. So, yeah. Thank you for that, really. Uh, we're drawing close to the end of our session, regrettably. And now I'd like to get to asking you questions in relation to two poems that I requested that you please share with our audiences. Latasha, what I've noted is that you highly invested in the invocation of feminine biographies and narratives giving a glimpse of the interiority of women's lives and everything from the seemingly mundane to the sacred. I find this work paramount to our collective psycho-spiritual wounds and finding healing. So I'm really going to ask of you that you, in the same tradition that you have done in the book of excavating and just digging up the unmarked graves of the women that came before us, please, could you read from page 85? And apologies if I do not pronounce this right, but I believe the title is Uzdi is Salagi for Baby. That, I swear, is my favorite poem. Thank you. So it's Ushdi. Ushdi, okay. You weren't that far from it. It's Chalagi. Chalagi. Yeah, a quick backstory. As this series of poems in the book were from the original manuscript, they were wishes, dreams. And when I was rewriting them, I asked myself, were these truly my wishes and dreams or were they borrowed dreams? And the painful truth of which is in the follow-ups, in the truths that follow them of what I have now what I have, what I don't have. But then to then rewrite it and to go further into the definition of the word, which is baby. So, Ushti is Chalagi for baby. Her name is Anastasia. Margie, her middle is after your mother. His name is you. Kyoshi, her name is. His name is Chaden. Nami, her name is, his name is Hiroshi, Japanese for generous. Her name, Aroha, for love. Lightfoot, her middle name is, after your Elogi, your aunt, Loki. Loki is hot. His name is Lin. Hopi for flute, a lion's heart, Scandinavian. His middle name is Robert. After your uncle, you're a duchi. Ma'i, her name is Coyote, is Veda for eternal knowledge, Sanskrit 
Too many foreign films. Ain't feeling Kwanzaa. We won't name her Imani. Yoruba is so cliche. Hushno, beauty. Mary, her middle name is after your aunt. Buluche, she arrived. She came. Atahua, beautiful. Elizabeth, her middle name. His middle name is Joshua, after your grandfather, after your great-grandfather, Ududu. No one will be named after your father. Tu es patir. I willed this. Hmm. And my offering to you is Tamaku, which is Isikosa, translating to may you continue to flow with the abundance of water. Thank you for that. Sile, you have brought to my consciousness a name, a feminine biography that I was not aware of in the form of Nogutula Orela Simelani. And this, again, I'm reminded of by Latasha's invocation of all these women in a bloodline and in a history. And I want to acknowledge the fact that there's a great impact and a great significance achieved by bringing up these biographies, especially for someone who is a part of our tumultuous history that somehow has been erased from the canon. So thank you for that. And that is still not the poem that I want to ask you to share for us, though I would recommend that our listeners go and read that from Zabalaza Republic. And the title of the poem, Remember Nogutula Simelane. However, the poem that comes to mind right now is one that I have avoided and with great difficulty because it's the first poem on Zabalaza Republic because I don't much appreciate being yanked by the spleen, so you'll forgive me for that. But here we are discussing the contravening and erasure of feminine histories. And after that mesmeric invocation by Latasha of the mothers, the sisters, the daughters in a bloodline, I must ask you now to bring up an iconic woman who, though deserving of being memorialized, remains conveniently relegated to the fringes of political discourse in South Africa. And that is Unomzamo Madikizela. I was greatly moved by your poem, Children of Winnie Freestyle, that is on page 10 of Zabalaza Republic, not only by the rawness and vulnerability of the narrator's voice and how immaculately you executed the first person POV, but equally so by the level of empathy you, via the narrator, exhibit towards her. So I'm going to ask right now that you please share the poem Children of Winnie, Freestyle, all right. Children of Winnie Freestyle, after Deshaun McKinney's poem, Children of Asata Freestyle. Your children live in the shadows, Mama, and no one knows more about this than you. Following the rise of the new dawn after the Genesis in 94, you live silently beneath a returning voice, softening from the inside of Utata's neck at the very same spot where the sun rose. At this point, it was not yet loss, only a softening. Your tongue, Mama, what have they done? 
What have we done? Nothing and everything. A deafening silence. Coming closer, Mama. Long enough for reincarnation. Just one last time, Mama. For all time's sake. A never-ending sunset clause that we die under. A shedding of a heavy load. A loss of power. The color of our skin. And how much longer in this darkness. Because since the sunset, Mama, I have struggled. With the closing of your eyes that led to a shattering of mine. Like eyeless Oedipus led to seeing more clearly after losing sight. And so I come to you, Mama, to seek protection, because it seems there is a matter that must be handled traditionally. Because first it was there in an academic department in the Free State, and recently it has followed me to another in Johannesburg. Mama, what I mean to say is that I have been plagued by a ghost. There is the spirit of a middle aged Afrikaner woman unable to be quietened by kindness. She leaves me alone only when I'm unemployed. Her words are ruining my worth. My bones are left behind for vultures devouring me as I return home to the township. Hey, God, are your children, Mama? Or oh, they hunger. Filling Imulomoyama with my shame, they puff cheeks full of deliciousness. And Mama, the ones who love you have come to pay their last respects. We will not lose hope for your eventual return because even O Helen has managed to reincarnate a catalyst for war, the launch of a thousand ships. Only this time she is no longer armed with beauty. She is a colonial apologist now, armed with her English to address the professional blacks. In your eyes, Mama, will you still love me even as a small boy in the body of a man since I am no longer recognized as a man because of a lifetime of fear in my heart? Because my black tax is long overdue. Because mama, as a man, I am broken. And today all my oppressors are here at your funeral. And today all your oppressors are here at your funeral. The same ones who banished you to Brantford. The ones who betrayed you rub shoulders with them. Their shoulders have become warm. And mama, more recently, I have felt this feeling coming. A kind of firming like a tension of the jaws. The same one defiantly returning you to your home in Soweto, and for the sake of peace, how much longer must I bite down even when I am hurting? How much longer must I take my own teeth, piercing my tongue inside a closed mouth, holding back a red harshness, a harshness that leaves behind a bitter taste, because all my life I want money and power, respect my mind or die, and they won't like it when it comes out like this. They will respond and say it is unlike me, that I've always been polite and respectful, because I've always chosen to remain silent, because they have peace of mind if I become more like them, because there is the fear of the radical black, even if being a radical black is merely the opening of the mouth to speak. Like in the Johannesburg office that one time, when the same haunting spirit of an Afrikaner ghost approached me, saying she wants to teach me manners, saying she is not sorry, saying there is nothing more to it, it is all in my head that I am the one who chose to make this whole thing about race. Thank you. No, thank you. Really, really, for this beautiful rendering of sentiments that I believe remain at the heart of the discontent that some of us have in the way that Winnie Mandela, who is of Abandubagwa, 
Mandela. I like to make this distinction because part of her erasure has been us just clothing her in this overbearing name of a patriarch that takes away from how dynamic her identity was, you know, aside from being an appendage to this man. So what you have done in this poem is really bring her up in such a beautiful way that it revives not only our memory of her, but also the need to continue where she left off with the work that she was doing. So, well, thank you. Thank you. <sighs> thank you. So, as is the custom with The Empty Chair, this episode is in solidarity with Penn Myanmar member, writer and activist Mo Niang, who is currently serving a 54-year prison sentence, the details of which I'm sure you'll find on the Penn Essay website. I'm now going to ask of our two guests that they please share a message of solidarity and encouragement, be that in the form of a quote or maybe a poem that they'd like to share. I'd like to share a poem in solidarity to our fellow poet who is being imprisoned and, and not with us physically or virtually. The poem American Sonnet 61 by the late Wanda Coleman. Reaching down into my griot bag, a womanish wisdom and willy social commentary. I come up with bricks with which to either reconstruct the past or deconstruct ahead. Dollar robs me of art's coin as I push for peanuts to level walls and rebuild the ruins of my poetic promise. From the infinite alphabet of Afro blues intertwinings, I call apocalyptic visions, the details and lovers entirely real, and articulate my voyage beyond that point where self disappears. Mis violentas flores negras. These are my slave songs. Thank you. Do you have something you'd like to share, Sisley? Yes, I'd like to read one of my own. It's called The National Screening of Sarafina every year on June 16th. The National Screening of Sarafina every year on June 16th is born out of a deep fear because some nightmare has led to this. Like how the younger ones in our family cannot speak in Isizulu because as a family, we did not speak Isuzulu often enough around them. Because of a generational erasure that happened along the way, because it was never my decision to make, yet I still have this persistent urge to repent for the sin of leaving the township in 97, because the township says there's too much whiteness in my blackness that they no longer recognize me. Because in New Germany, our suburban neighbors would never greet only knocking on the window to complain about booming bass, strong tone of bass above my timid voice, then I am black again. Because our sound system only blotted township frequency, our white neighbors acknowledging our existence shortly after the explosion. 
because to them Kwaito sounded like a housebreaking. And this was the time in suburbia when I learned about the essence of silencing. The singing and dancing was too loud on Sarafina. Songs of Zabalaza were too violent on Sarafina. Black uniformed kids anglicized their pain on Sarafina. Sounds of Tatamia, sounds of choral, all too sharp, too deep, too much. Because of the imminent threat of the Soweto uprising of 76 forgotten, and the purpose of these must fall comparisons only served to preserve the memory before the nightmare realized. And which generation still refuses to give up power? Who has sabotaged the power stations? How much longer in this darkness? Because the youngest ones in our family do not speak in Isizulu, because I black rage in fluent English by default, and perhaps my ancestors are hesitant to speak with me, because there is an aversion to warn the one who speaks in the language that oppressed them. The torture scenes were too brutal on Sarafina, black smiles were far too wide on Sarafina, uniformed school kids danced far too much on Sarafina, so why is there still a need for a national screening of Sarafina every year on June 16? Because this whole time, there must still be some who get it confused, thinking we chucked and jived because we enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for listening to us. As a closing word, I will share my own poem, which is written in Isikosa and serves as a word of encouragement and solidarity. Wasala <laughs> Shoni paba pila gwele minyanya bao ya latin lelo ya guitata yombata nubia kweka sbali lechali. Bali nsikelelo zako zimingweno yako uinikezele kosombawo. Ongenda wazunga moyiki kengu mnyiki nje ochucha etutaba petwe luvalo. Tualo wakumtualo utenu mkolo zutenu kolo. Thank you very much to Latasha. Thank you very much to Siile. This has been episode three of season nine of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. And I remain your host, Vuyogazi Ngemdu. Thank you, everyone. Truly an honor, an honor, an honor. Thanks for having me and goodbye. Thank you, Vuyokazi, Latasha, and Sitle for this capacious and profound conversation. Thank you to Andrew Bennett for producing this episode. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Boxbaum, to Penn South Africa board members, Nadia Davids, Yoande Omotosho, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulauti and Jahan Jones Radkowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of season nine of the empty chair a transatlantic conversation if you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech 
and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared history. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.